chapter, God's people must, God's people must adorn the teaching that God is the Savior. When people look at us, people look at our lives, they can see a beautiful life that has been transformed. To live a well-pleasing life to God is to live a sacrificial life, a life that's wrapped up in Jesus, a life that's molded by Christ, empowered by Jesus, and after the pattern of Christ. It's a great joy to be with all of you. I want to ask you to please open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We have been walking through this wonderful letter to Titus. And we are going to continue now covering verses 9 and 10, but we are going to read the whole, the whole portion of chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 10. Now we're going to read 1 through 14. Let's get the whole portion here. Uh, would you stand, please? It says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger man to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model, a pattern of good works. And your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You may be seated. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Uh, philosophers and apo Christian apolo apologists, they use different arguments for the existence of God. So if you have read some books on apologetics or systematic theology, you see that there are arguments for the existence of God. So, for example, there is the ontological argument or there is the moral argument. The moral argument means that since there is morality in, in humanity, therefore this argument says that there is a moral creator. So because there is a moral creator, there is morality among people. That's the moral argument. Another argument that's well known is the cosmological argument. The 
Cosmological argument attempts to prove God's existence by observing the world around us from the word cosmos, the order of the universe. It started with Aristotle, then was very well established by Thomas Aquinas, and it's a well-known philosophical argument for the existence of God, the first cause that there is for all the other causes. The cosmological argument derives from the word cosmology, which is the study of what? The cosmos. But in Titus, we come to a different argument that you're not going to find in any philosophical books. But I would say that's the cosmetical argument that Paul uses here. Paul talks about the cosmetical, the cosmetic argument for the existence of God. And that is because Paul, in verse 10 of chapter 2, he used the word cosmel, from where we have cosmetics. And Paul is saying that we all, referring to slaves and all Christians, we are to adorn, to cosmel, the teaching of God our Savior. And that's something that we see, this cosmetic argument throughout the scriptures. Where God's people must, God's people must adorn the teaching that God is the Savior. That's the cosmetic argument. When people look at us, people look at our lives, they can see a beautiful life that has been transformed. They can look at us and say, wow, there is indeed a God. To look at Jeff, to look at Nestor, to look at Wally before and then look after what Christ has done, people can only say, yes, there is indeed a God. Because look at the transformation of the life. And the letter to Titus is very concerned with the cosmetic argument. Or the cosmetical argument. That's something that Paul keeps emphasizing through Titus. The good works, the good works, how to behave. Why? So people can see with their eyes the power of the gospel in their lives. Especially in a culture, in a society like Crete. So depraved. So... As we come today to the last part, that's the, the, the last section here in the verses 1 through 10. We come to the call to slaves to live a healthy, godly life that will be attracted, will be adorned, and will lead others to see the glory of God. So just a review, because it has been a long time since we walked through verse 1. But it, it's fascinating how verse 1 and verse 10, they form the... The book endings of the, this, this portion here. So you can look in your Bibles. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And we saw in, the, in, in that sermon in, in verse 1 that that word accords with could be translated as fitting with. And that's a word that Paul used for the women, how they are supposed to dress themselves. It's a word related to dressing yourself appropriately. So it's interesting that in verse 1 he talks about dressing ourselves appropriately related to sound doctrine. And now in verse 10 he closed that by talking to all of us by adorning adorning the gospel, beautifying the gospel. So what we have here is between these two book endings, verse 1 and verse 10, we have here the wardrobe of the Christian life. Paul is giving us here the, the, the we could say, the, 
the bathroom vanity where you have a different variety of colognes and perfumes and pros and a wardrobe with beautiful clothes where the Christian is supposed to dress himself in a way that's fitting with sound doctrine and in a way that is adorning the gospel of God our Savior. So let's walk through verses 9 through 10 as Paul comes to the conclusion of dealing with all the different groups in the church. We saw earlier that he dealt with the older men the older women, the younger women, the younger men, the leaders, and now he's dealing with the slaves in the church. And that's important because the word that Paul used here is the dolos, is the word related to slave. He's not talking about servants. He's talking about slaves. And I'm not going to spend time anymore because we spent a whole sermon last Sunday just talking about the Bible and slavery. So I will not spend time dealing with that. I, there was more than an hour. I'm sorry. I, I saw that it was longer than an hour because when I said the recording here from my phone, I was late. And, but yes, so I'm not going to be trying to develop that. It's all there. You have the sermon recorded. But what we see here, and especially in Crete, Crete, Crete the island of Crete was well known for piracy as the ships would come to Crete and then there was the, tra the, the trafficking of humans, slavery, a lot of slaves in the island of Crete. And imagine the power of the gospel now saving some of those slaves, and they're coming to church. And these slaves are coming to church, and they're listening to a gospel that says that in Christ there is no slave or free. That the social walls are abolished in Christ, so they need instruction on how to live. How am I going to live the Christian life? If in Christ, not in the Roman Empire, but in Christ, there is no social barriers. And that's why Paul is helping here. He's teaching these slaves how they are supposed to live the Christian life. And the first thing that he tells them is to be submissive. Look at that. The slaves are to be what? Submissive to their own masters in everything. So submission is the key. Submission. And that's the heart of the problem, right? Everyone who is under authority knows that submission is hard. And that's where Paul is tackling. He's going to the heart of the issue. All those who are under authority, and I would say all of us, in some way we are under some sort of authority, we always struggle with submitting ourselves, submitting joyfully, See, the, the, the slaves, they're not supposed to be dragged or beaten into submission. No, that's not it. They're to imitate Jesus Christ, who was the greatest slave of all. And the greatest slave of all was Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, he took the form of a doulos, of a slave. He was submissive, even under the greatest social injustice that ever happened. And that's something that Paul likes repeating. Those under your authority, they must be submissive. And he tells the same thing to his slaves in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, it's very similar to what he says. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from where? From the heart. 
There must be a heart attitude of submission. Because you can obey somebody, but not being submissive, right? Look at our kids. How often they obey us with a rebellious heart. And that's not the Christian life. The Lord does not want people obeying, but murmuring, being angry, and being unsubmissive in their hearts. Murrah Harris, he, he explains, especially with these slaves in those times, he says, Whereas most slaves served under some degree of compulsion and expected punishment for disobedience, Christ's slaves serve voluntarily, so that what motivates their service is not fear of punishment or even principally the prospect of a reward, but the desire to please their master Jesus. Amen? Paul says that they are supposed to be submissive in everything. That's similar to what Paul tells their wives, to be submissive in everything. And why is Paul saying that? Because it's easy for us to be submissive in some areas where we like to submit ourselves. But Paul is saying, no, 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 that, that's a, a whole life of submission. And we saw dealing with their wives, and we saw that before, that Every human authority is limited. Every submission to human authority is limited. Amen? So when he says, be submissive to your masters in everything, just like with the wives. In everything, as long as they're not asking you to disobey the Lord. That's the sphere of submission in everything. So we think about slaves, wives, children, employees, church members, we citizens under a government. We are all called to submit ourselves to those who are in authority. As far as they are not commanded to do what God prohibits or they are being prohibited to do what God commands. So that's very important as we deal with this subject. But it's also fascinating to see what Paul is not calling these slaves to do. Paul is not saying, slaves, it's time to join forces and abolish this social injustice. Paul doesn't say that. Nowhere we see Paul saying, slaves, it's time to join forces, stand up against this oppressive system, it's time to reform the society. You don't see Paul doing that. The church and the Christians have never been called to be agents of rebellion, insurrection, and uprising. You don't see that in the New Testament. We are never called to be like that. And even when we must disobey governing authorities, we must disobey them showing a spirit of gentleness and sadness. I have seen many Christians always so eager to disobey the government. And then show at their face that they are disobeying the government. That should never mark the Christians or the church. Christianity has always been marked by gentleness and sadness when we need to disobey those who are in authority over us. That's very important. Because especially uh, when you had the, the COVID situation, you see some churches, some Christians, so eager to show others that they are disobeying the government. It should never be like that. We should sh always show a spirit of brokenness. Because we must be marked by submission. And there will be times when we cannot, and we will not. But we are not going to do that 
smiling, rejoicing, and making fun of them. So Paul is concerned with the glory of God, more with the glory of God than with our own well-being, the comfort of our lives. And we live in a society full of insubordinate people, right? Look at society around us, and you see the mark as people who lack submission. Younger people especially, always complaining, grumbling, being disrespectful to those in authority. They cannot submit themselves to their managers, the boss, pastors in the church, parents. They're always ready to protest, to complain, to argue. That cannot be us, brothers and sisters. And Paul is going to use now a chiastic structure here to show how the slaves, and I would say all of us, because we're always slaves of Christ, we're supposed to be submissive. And the first thing that Paul tells us is by being well-pleasing. Look at that. The slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing. Well-pleasing to whom? That's a good question. If you have the NIV... I believe that the NIV says, well-pleasing to them, referring to the masters. But the problem is that that's not in the text. And what is fascinating is when you read the New Testament and you see all the, Greek, all the use of this Greek word, it's always connected to God. It's always related to God. So, for example, Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and Here's the word, well-pleasing to whom? To God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is a good and acceptable, same Greek word, imperfect, re related to God. Look at Romans 14, 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is accept acceptable to whom? To God and approved by man. Another one, Ephesians 5.10. Try to discern what is well-pleasing to whom? To the Lord. Hebrews, that's a beautiful text. Look at Hebrews 13, verse 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is what? Well-pleasing. In his sight. So according to Paul and to the rest of the New Testament, every time this word is used, is referred primarily to whom? To God. And I believe that that's exactly what Paul is tackling here. To be well-pleasing, first of all, to God. Because that's something that he tells the slaves in other texts. So, for example, in Ephesians 6, slaves... Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would who? Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Not pleasing men, not well-pleasing to men, first of all, but well-pleasing to God. Or Colossians chapter 3. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for whom? The Lord, and not for men, 
knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving whom? The Lord. The Lord. So, I believe that when Paul says to be well-pleasing, he's referring primarily to God. He is the first object. What is to be well-pleasing? Well-pleasing is related to sacrificial life. To, be a, to live a well-pleasing life to God is to live a sacrificial life, a life that's wrapped up in Jesus, a life that's molded by Christ, empowered by Jesus, and after the pattern of Christ. That's what it is to live a well-pleasing life before God. So think about that, brothers and sisters. Every day that you go to work, you must remember, you must remember that the one whom you must please, first of all, is whom? The Lord. Not your boss. Not the people at work. Not those over in your work. But the Lord Jesus. I think about myself, especially some of us, we don't have people right at the workplace overseeing us. We must remember that we are working to please the Lord. So when I'm in my office by myself, I need to be mindful that the eyes of the Lord are over me. And He's the one who I must please. Not please you, please the Lord, first of all. And the same applies if you. I suppose you're the CEO of a big company. Remember that you are under the lordship of Christ. If you work at a car wash, a fast food chain, if you work at your home as a homekeeper, if you work as the director of a big company, no matter where you find yourself, whether in high position, low position, you must always work knowing that you must please the Lord first of all. And let me tell you, if you're pleasing the Lord, I would say that 98% of the time you're going to please your, mass, your earthly employers, your bosses. Amen? If you're pleasing the Lord, the great majority of the time you're going to be pleasing to other people. Amen? Why? Because if you're pleasing the Lord by, being, by having work ethics, working hard, being on time, being trustworthy, if you're pleasing the Lord, you're going to please other people too. And if by your obedience, and if by your pleasing the Lord, you, disple you displease your boss, let it be so. Let it be. If Christ is pleased, it's not, it doesn't matter who is displeased. Amen? So it's good to keep that in mind. Well-pleasing. I, I need to be well-pleasing to the Lord. Well-pleasing to the Lord, first of all. Paul also adds another one here, not being argumentative. Hmm. A vice that must be put to death. The Greek word here, antilago, could refer to those who are argumentative or those who speak badly. Islanders speak at their, on their backs. And I think both here come together. And we know how easy it is to be argumentative to those who are in authority over us, right? How easy it is to be argumentative. You always know better than those who are over you. Those over in you tell you to do something, and you always know better that you should do something else that's going to be better. We always want to argue. And so, a lot of times, especially slaves, you might not be arguing verbally, but you go in and then you, talk, you argue with other people. Like, oh man, can you believe that he's telling us to do that again? Can he see that doesn't work? 
Can't he see that there's a much better way if he just asks my opinion? I always arguing, grumbling. And this bad attitude of grumbling, arguing, murmuring, oftentimes becomes murdering. The murmuring soon becomes murdering with our words. Right? Starts in our hearts, murmuring, complaining, and then suddenly we are murdering, saying nasty things about people in authority over us. Slandering. Also the word, until I go, denotes vocal rebellion against authority. And Paul does not want the Christian slaves. Think about the, the slave community of Christians. Paul by no means wants them to be known as those who are rebellious and argumentative. So, being argumentative, always being belligerent, contentious, speaking badly about those in authority, reveal a very insubordinate heart, a heart that's prideful. So, let me ask you, brothers and sisters, how are you known at your workplace or at home? Are you known for being an argumentative person? Do you often grumble and complain about those over you in your workplace? Do you often complain about your church leaders? For the younger ones, are you constantly arguing with your parents? Here's another question. How do we speak about those in authority, in government authority? How do we speak about presidents and governors over us? I have seen parents... They lived a life of always complaining, always murmuring about all those who were in authority. Always complaining about those in authority at work, at church, government. And they they wonder why their kids have a rebellious spirit. You just fed that sinful seed that was in their hearts. So may we never be known for being argumentative, slanderers. Amen? Another one that Paul tells, another vice that must be put to death, not pilfering. That's the ESV, not pilfering. That's an interesting word. Uh, the NIV has to not steal or not stealing the Christian Standard Bible. And that's what the word nosfizo means. It means to misappropriate funds for one's own benefit. The same word is used for Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 when there is key that... that, that the scheming operation that they have there of keeping for themselves and lying to others. George Knight, in his commentary, he says, Stealing would be a temptation to slaves who could have access to many things that might not be missed in small quantities and who might justify their actions by saying either that the item did not count and would not be missed or that what they stole was justly old to them anyway. And that's something that we see happening with all of us. We do something wrong and we always have an excuse, right? We always, ac- we always have an excuse for the sinful things we do. And especially when it comes to stealing. Or you can just picture the slave saying, I'll, I'll make sure they'll get paid what I deserve. And just keeping some of the things, stealing. How about nowadays? What is the modern pilfering? How many... Christians waste their employees' money by spending time on the phone when they should be working. That's the modern pilfering. An article from Forbes says, 
uh, with the proliferation of so many addictive sites, employees secretly spend an inordinate amount of time on social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, online shopping, and chat apps. The average worker spends more than two and a half hours per day using social platforms, according to research from GWY. Imagine that. The hour that you're getting paid, you're actually robbing your boss because you are doing nothing but entertaining yourself with your phone. And when you're stealing, you're actually saying that what God has provided for you is not enough. That's a problem. When you're stealing and robbing, we are saying that what God has provided is not enough. And you're making him a liar who said who would give us all that we need. So, Robert Yarbrough, he also mentions another aspect. I had not thought about that, but it's very true. He says, while Paul may be warning against thievery, he may also be thinking of what these, these slaves owe their masters in God's sight and what they must not therefore fail to present. And that is a demonstration of forthright Christian faith backed up by concrete, upright behavior. Meaning, sometimes you're robbing those over you of the beauty of the gospel. You're robbing them to see that Christ Jesus in you is the hope of glory. You're robbing those over you of seeing the beauty of a new creation in Christ. Because they can look at you and look at the unbeliever and say, it's all the same thing. May we never, never be found like that. And another one that Paul says, and here you have the contrast. Look at that. But brings a contrast. So in instead of pilfering, instead showing, and the showing here is a public display so everyone can see, showing what is better translated as faithfulness. Uh, the NIV has showing that they can be fully trusted, demonstrating utter faithfulness. The King James has showing all good fidelity. And I believe those are the best translations. He's calling these slaves, instead of being unfaithful, they must show themselves to be faithful. One scholar translates as demonstrating utter dependability. And I believe that Paul is actually borrowing that from Matthew 25. Where in that parable, Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful slave. And Paul used the same words here referring to these slaves. And we know that every Christian is a slave of Christ, and every one of us must be trustworthy. People must be able to trust you, brothers and sisters, trust your character. Trust your word. People over you must trust you so much that if one day they forget their wallet full of cash, they know that the wallet will be secure under your care. Amen? Faithful. Trustworthy. Just like Jesus, the faithful one. Be a person that your family, your church, your friends, your workplace can trust. 
That's the opposite of the society that we live. We live in a society surrounded by people that you cannot trust. Those who have business here know how hard it is to have people working for you that you can trust. Reliable, trustworthy people. That's one of the things I hear the, the most people complain is, I cannot find people who are reliable. And it's a shame if these people proclaim to be Christians. We need to be faithful, reliable, trustworthy. Amen? And look at the, the reason here. Paul now, Paul now gives us the reason why he's asking all these things. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that, so that. Look with me to verse 5. He's telling the younger women to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husband, so that... The word of God may not be reviled. Now look with me to verse 8. Telling Titus and all the leaders, show yourself in all respect to be a, good, a, a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Paul has what we saw earlier, the cosmetical argument. He believes that it's crucial for us to live holy lives before the eyes of the world. And that's what he's saying here. And that's very similar to what he says to his slaves in 1 Timothy, but then he changes there. So he says in 1 Timothy 6.1, he says, Let all who are under the yoke of as his slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that, look at that, so that... The name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. That's the opposite of Titus. But it's the same thing. It says, in 1 Timothy 6, it says, Live holy, godly lives so that the gospel will not be filthified. Will not make the gospel filthy, reviled. In Titus, he says the same thing, but live holy, godly lives so the gospel will be purified. Adorned. And that's an amazing thing that a lot of people do not notice. And that goes back with the sermon from last Sunday. And it is the elevation of slaves. We ought to see here how Christianity elevated the social class of slaves. With Christianity, slaves are addressed with dignity. They are people bought by Jesus... And just like everybody else in the church, they have the power to adorn the gospel with their lives. This type of teaching was unheard in the first century. To tell the slaves now, they have the power to adorn the gospels, and they have the power actually to influence their masters with the gospel. That was unheard of. So Marshall, he writes, he says, the passage shows that even the lowest, lowliest in society can contribute to the splendor of the Christian life. The passage shows that people can live Christian life within the existing orders of society. So Christianity 
can make the lowest in society become an ornament, an ornament, an adornment of the king of glory. That's beautiful. Let me tell you that slaves in, first century, in the first century had a very bad reputation. Bad reputation for bad character, and especially in Crete. <laughs> and now for slaves to be behaving with a godly, honorable character, there was no way to not impact the masters and make them see that there was a big change there. And you see that we, we live in a society that everybody wants to be the victim, right? Everybody's a victim. The Bible does not play the victim card. Even those under oppression of slavery in the first century had the power of Christ to live a different life. The slaves could not blame their social situation. That's what we see today. Everybody complaining, blaming. Oh, if only, if only I was better socially. The Bible does not give us that card. Because if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. And you are a new creation. However the world may treat us, Philip's right, the gospel of Jesus delivers us from a victim mentality. A Christian is one who has been showered with God's unmerited grace and clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. The Christian is set free by the gospel to personal dignity and godliness and unleashed by God as an agent of the kingdom of heaven. This is one of the many reasons, but one of the many reasons that Christians by no means can embrace critical race theory, where it's all about blaming the past. The theory that excused the past oppression in the present life, not with Christians, not with Christians. So you cannot either be blaming your past if you are in Christ. Amen? And look at what Paul says. He says, So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul and the rest of the scriptures are very concerned with the life of the people of God. And let me remind you, remind all of us here that we do not live for ourselves. We live, first of all, for God's glory. As a Christian, you live for God's glory, for the sanctification of your church, and the salvation, the conversion of the lost. That's our lives. We, we, don't, we do not live for ourselves. It's the glory of God, the sanctification of the church, and the conversion of the lost. So, think about your crankiness. You're always moody constant state of being downcast and gloomy, always angry, nasty words, always grumbling, always lazy, bad behavior constantly, that has a tremendous impact in Christ and in the church. Amen? How many of you know people who claim to be Christians? It's like, man, if that's the fruit of Christianity, this crankiness, no thank you. Paul says that we must live godly lives in order to adorn. And that's a beautiful word that he used here. To adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Cosmel, I mentioned that earlier. And Cosmel comes from cosmos, and the verb was used to placing armies in, in order, getting things in order. 
You think about the, the cosmos is orderly. God created everything with order. And the opposite of order is what? Chaos. Disorder. It's ugly, right? The God, God's a God of order. He's beautiful. The opposite is disorder, chaos. And that's ugly. The same word cosmeo, it's interesting how it's used throughout the scriptures. So, for example, in the Greek version of Second Chronicles, uh, Solomon, is, Solomon is preparing the temple. It says, Solomon adorned, that's the same Cosmel word, adorned the temple with, setting, with settings of precious stones, Second Chronicles 3.6. In Matthew 12, in the parable of the, the demon who comes back to the clean house, it says, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and what? Put in order. Cosmel, right there. Or Revelation 21.2. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. So that's how this word is used. Something beautiful, orderly, well done. And that's the power of the gospel in the lives of those who were slaves in the first century. And that's the power of the gospel in our lives today. We have been set free from the tyranny of sin and the chaos of the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of God, a God of order, a God of cosmos. So, the question is, as I was thinking about that, okay, can we make the gospel more beautiful than what it already is? Look at that. Can we make the most beautiful thing more beautiful? Can we bring more glory to what is the most glorious thing that God has accomplished? And I think it's important for us to think here, it's very similar to the Bible when the Bible says, glorify the Lord. We cannot bring more glory to God. It's not like He needs a little bit more glory to be more glorious. And it's not like the gospel needs a little bit more adornment to become more beautiful. No. Remember, when you're glorifying the Lord, it means that we are ascribing Him the glory that He deserves. And the same when it comes to adorning. It implies that what we do, we are decorating, we are showing forth the beauty of the gospel. Think about Doctrine. You can read doctrine, and doctrine is very abstract. Amen? Doctrine is abstract. But it becomes a visible reality when you see doctrine applied into someone's life. I like what Robert Yarbrough, he says, he says, Doctrine by itself can be, can be lifeless and dull, but lived out nobly, it may work magnetically and give rise to admiration. And the truth, brothers and sisters, is that we are always either adorning the gospel or we are amputating the gospel. We are either, with our lives, lives making the gospel beautiful or we are uglifying the most beautiful event. And that has always been God's way with His people. He has always placed His people on display for others to see. Amen? Look at the Old Testament. So, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, the Lord says, See, 
I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded, Moses is writing, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. Where? In the sight of the people, who when they hear of all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what, what great nation is there that has a God so near, so as to the Lord our God is to us? So he's placing them in a, look, in a very geographical location where others will see them. And the purpose is by seeing their lives, the changed lives, they will glorify God. God has always placed his people on display. Jeremiah 13, Jeremiah 13, verses 10 through 11, God says that he described as longing to wear his people Israel as a robe to adorn himself. He says that he's longing to, to wear them just as this beautiful garment that will be adorning himself so the other nations can see this beautiful God by their by his people, through his people. But actually, Israel's rebellion, Israel's sin, Israel's disobedience, rejection of the lordship of Yahweh, caused them to become what? A filthy garment. And a filthy garment is not adorning anyone. So now, how could God attract the, the admiration of the other nations when he's wearing filthy garments? When the nation that he placed around himself, as one scholar says, they're no better than dirty underwear. He can't. That's not attractive. That's not beautiful. That's not adorning. No wonder they're going to exile. Also, David, that's a strong passage here, Second Samuel 12, after David sinned against the Lord by committing adultery and murder, Nathan tells David, by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme. Your lifestyle, your sins, instead of leading people to praise the Lord, they're actually blaspheming your God. On the other hand, we see Daniel, we see Joseph, we see Ruth, who by their Good behavior, even though brought suffering, we will always bring suffering, also brought adoration. Gentiles, other people were able to see and say, yes, there is a beautiful God. Look at this person here. So you read Ezekiel 36, and you see how in exile God says that they made his name to be blasphemed among the nations. So instead of Israel showing forth a beautiful God through their actions, they actually did the opposite of adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. The same principle applies to the church under the new covenant. So in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You are, it's not that you will be, you are. If you are in Christ, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But when I stand and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, look at that. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 
Paul says, But we, First Thessalonians 4, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly. Stop blabbing. Stop being obnoxious. And to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before whom? Outsiders. And be dependent on no one. So Paul is saying, when Christians work hard, when Christians have biblical ethics at workplace, they're actually showing Christ to those people. Peter says, Peter, 1 Peter 3, Likewise, wives, he's talking to the wives whose husbands were not saved. And we can apply that to husbands whose wives are not saved. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respect and your holy conduct. Instead of nagging and being obnoxious with their verbosity, the women should live holy, godly, quiet lives and show Christ through their lives. Christopher Wright, he says that that's the missional magnetism. The missional magnetism. You're attracting people by your lifestyle. He says, God longs to draw people to himself. God seeks the lost, invites the stranger to come on, to come on home. But a primary means that he does so is by living in the midst of his own people in such a way that they attract others. Part of the mission of God's people is to have God so much at the center of who they are and what they do that there is a centripetal force bring them. God's own gravita gravitational pull, pulling people, that draws people into the sphere of His blessing. That's a beautiful picture. As people, that's similar to what Jesus said. As people see how we live, and hear what we are proclaiming, they can put the two together and say, yes, yes. But it's important that to stop here because I have heard some people where you, you do not evangelize with words, you just evangelize with actions. Silence evangelism. There is no such thing as in the Bible. Okay? Look at Paul says that you are adorning the doctrine, the teaching of God our Savior. There must be the teaching. There must be the preaching of God our Savior. And that teaching, that preaching must be backed up by your life that shows that you have been changed. Amen? Every day at work, every day you're at work, you have God's opportunity to show the gospel to other people. When you think about the opposite, how many of us had a horrible and sour taste of Christianity because of how some people who claim to be Christians acted towards us, right? There are people who are always, always blaming other Christians. It's like, oh, if you just knew what people who claim to be Christians did to me, and that does not deny. You see, that, that's the truth. And then how are we living? We must be living holy, godly lives, adorning the gospel as we are proclaiming that truth. Schreiner says, 
If mercy has been extended to us, then surely we ought to live in such a way that others can see the beauty of what we have received so that they too will share in God's kindness. Paul is not merely concerned about the lives of believers because he wants them to be respectable in the eyes of, a soci- of the society. As if bur- burge- bourgeois, bourgeois. As if a bourgeois way of life is the end point of his concern. By no means. The confessional statement in Titus 2 and then 3 revealed that the salvation of others is also in view. Believers who live unremarkable or even evil lives instead of adorning the gospel not only detract from it, but also hinder its progress in the world. Amen? That's why I label this a healthy, godly, and attractive church. A healthy church is a church that is godly, that fears the Lord, that lives under the eyes of the Lord. And this church that's living under the eyes of the Lord, will uh, be adorning the gospel, will make Christ be beautiful and attract others. And to finish, and we are done here, look at how he ends, verse 10. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The way we live reflect whether we have been saved or not. There is no such thing as, I don't know if that person is saved. I'm sorry. Salvation is made visible through actions. The roots of grace will be manifested in fruits of holiness and godliness. You know, you know the people who fear the Lord. You know by their lives. God our Savior. And that's the great story of the Bible. It's the great message of the gospel that God, indeed, the triune God, has in mercy, in grace, outstretched His arm and rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and saved us, removed us, not placed us in a neutral place. No, He removed us from the kingdom of darkness and placed us in the kingdom of His Son, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of life. We have been saved from that kingdom of darkness, and our lives must reflect that. And look at the pronoun, God what? Our Savior. He's our Savior. That's why we gather together to worship. That's why we sing together. That's why we hear the preaching together. That's why we partake of the Lord's Supper together. That's why what we do is together, because God has saved us, not me, Not just me. Yes, there is the personal aspect, but He never saves me to leave me alone. He always saves me to put with His people. So the goodness of the good news is that we have the only, the only God on our side. God is our Savior. He's not our judge. He's not coming as our enemy. He's our friend. He's our Savior. And His salvation is real. Salvation is not invisible. Salvation is real. Salvation is visible. And is manifested in a life that has been transformed. Look at your lives, brothers and sisters. And tell me if it's not visible. What God our Savior has done. The changes. The transformation. The growth. It must be visible. 
People need to see as you're getting older, as you're growing, that there is a God who saved you from the lifestyle of all other people. And by living like that, we are adorning. You're just showing the beauty of the gospel. Amen? We are not adding to the beauty. We are just showing with these imperfect vessels that we are, the beauty of the gospel. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for your kindness towards us. Thank you for being our Savior, God our Savior. You're not our enemy. You're not our judge who is angry at us. But there are some here who do not know you, who are outside Christ, and do not have God as their Savior. For them, God is a terrifying enemy who is angry with sin and who is ready to judge. And for those who are outside Jesus, we pray that by your mercy, they would come into Jesus' arms and encounter this triune God who is our Savior and find the salvation that they desperately need, Lord. And help us. Help us to be a church of slaves who are submissive, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but faithful to you. Help us to be good and faithful slaves because we have the most loving master of all, Jesus Christ, our King. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.